0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the fifth Innovation Oz Budget Insider. My name is Corey McLeod, and I am the publisher of InnovationOz.com. We are coming to you from Canberra, Brisbane, and Sydney today. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country where I am, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Today, I'd like to start off by introducing James Riley and Denham Sadler, who have been down in budget lockup, combing through the budget papers, specifically as it regards to the industry policy and innovation, um, who are going to give us a recap of what they found and set the scene for a broader conversation with our panellists that I'll introduce following their introduction. James and Denham, welcome. And what did you find? What were the big ticket items? And was there a lot in this budget for us?
1: Dan is going to kick off this morning. He's going to give a quick overview, and uh, and then I'll join him just after him.
2: Yeah, so there was there was quite a lot in there for us. It was an interesting one that the digital economy and digital services was a major part of the budget, and kind of the treasurer did mention that in his speech. But one of the the big package was that one point two billion dollars that was announced last week. So we already kind of knew about that. So a lot of yesterday was kind of combing through that and finding out the detail. And a big chunk of that $500 million of that is going to MyGov and My Health Record. So they're kind of saying it's for enhancements to that. And there's lots of questions of whether that is going to go straight to consultants, like what's happening with MyGov or where that money's actually going to be going. But um, there's a lot of stuff in there. And then a big chunk of that too was for artificial intelligence. So there's going to be a national center established at CSIRO and there's more funding for grants and research in there as well. In terms of new stuff, I think one that was really interesting for us was the pattern box that got announced. So it is pretty limited, like it's just for um, medical and biotechnology patents. So it's pretty limited. I'm sure a lot in the sector would hope it would be a bit more wide ranging, but that's going to give tax breaks to kind of any income that's derived from that IP. In Australia, and it's kind of a big effort to keep commercialization here. And then um, that's end up to clean energy. So there is an openness to open up to other sectors and so maybe it could go a bit more widely later on as well in terms of reviews for the first time in a while the research and development tax incentive wasn't really mentioned in there the only real change we saw was that the board of taxation is launching a review into the administration of the scheme and that's going to kick off by the end of the year or hopefully finish by the end of the year i think and there's going to be a review into the tax treatment of venture capital and incentives on offer there as well and another big one it did come out on the morning which was a bit annoying but um there's going to be some changes to employee share schemes as well and that's kind of an interesting one that the government did announce some plan changes to that in 2018 that uh, never ended up happening but these ones do go a bit further and a lot of startups are probably a bit more happy with them but there's some changes to do with employees won't be forced to be taxed on them as soon as they finish up at the company that issued them and the cap's been raised by quite a lot as well James will probably talk a bit more to this but there was some small initiatives to try and improve procurement for SMEs, which is always interesting for us. There was $2.6 million over four years for kind of a review, some pilot programs, some learning packages for companies, but nothing too huge in there. There's also a pretty big chunk of funding for a new program called Boosting the Next Generation of Women in STEM. So that was a bit more than $40 million for a scholarship program, and that's going to be in partnership with the private sector. And the eSafety safety Commissioner got a big chunk of funding to assist with these new powers that are going to be probably debated in Parliament today, actually. And the Space Agency got a new funding boost, which is a big one for us. The space sector is kind of doing a lot of interesting stuff and we write about a lot. And they have got a lot more funding to kind of help them with issuing permits and applications for local launches. They actually haven't issued any yet, so that's a big concern in the sector and with politicians. Uh, the funding boost will help them out with that. And on the vaccine front, it was a bit of an interesting one because they didn't actually say how much funding went to it, but they did kind of confirm plans for local mRNA vaccine capability and talking to the private sector to do that in the long term. But they said that was commercial and confident. So there's no proper idea of actually how much money is going to be going towards that. And probably the other big one was they are going to finally split up the privacy commissioner. So at the moment, the same person is handling privacy and freedom of information information stuff, but they are going to appoint an FOI commissioner, which ideally frees up a bit more time to handle privacy and data stuff as well, and to address a big backlog in FOI cases. But um, I think James is going to jump on now and talk a bit more detail of some of the stuff we found in the digital package.
1: Yeah, interesting budget. As Dana mentioned, there was a fairly big section within the Treasurer's speech devoted to some of the technology initiatives that had been announced in the previous week. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, we've been at these events before, right, where there's been maybe a line or maybe absolutely nothing. So, I mean, if you call that progress, then that's progress. $1.2 billion for a digital economic strategy that didn't really read like a strategy. You wouldn't call it a grab bag, but they did seem just to, to package up a bunch of spending initiatives under that Heading When Scott Morrison announced the program or announced the initiative, I was expecting to see an actual strategy with some outlines of you know, KPIs and roadmaps and all the sorts of things you do in a strategy. That didn't eventuate. The biggest funding initiatives within that package was around $500 million for MyGov and My Health. Now, government is obviously a hugely important driver of behaviour, but as well as capability in a digital economy. So, you know, having those big government platforms interacting with the public in a digital fashion is incredibly important. But um, by the same token, it's kind of run a business, and I would say slightly disingenuous to package it up as a uh, you know as a new initiative. DTA for all the focus on digital and. The digital economy, the digital transformation agency, the whole of government digital agency actually had a funding cut by about $90 million next financial year and a fairly significant about 10% uh, cut in staff. You wouldn't read too much into that, given that some of the bigger projects that have been working on have been taken over by the agencies that they're in. So my gov, excuse me, is in Services Australia and Health doing my health. So... Beyond that, I guess what was not in the budget, as Denham mentioned, there was no mention, so to speak, of the R&D tax incentive. This despite that having some sort of special case treatment for software was the number one issue on the wish list of the startup sector also no mention of a research translation fund i think that was the number one priority on the you know the wish list of the science community i'll be very interested to hear what uh, the panel has to say on the artificial intelligence uh, stuff just before i hand off look my particular interest or bugbear is in how do you get more australian companies involved in supplying services to government like using Procurement as an industry development lever, and there's not, frankly, a lot of action there. There's very little in the budget that would make you think any of those big spending items on the government procurement plans will go anywhere other than where it has been going, which is to large foreign suppliers. Obviously, large foreign suppliers are hugely important, but I would say we could make a lot better effort at using our procurement dollars to drive you know, industrial capacity and capability. Just finally, there's a business research innovation initiative, a very small program that was run out of the Department of Industry. It, it kind of creates challenges to enforce specific problems. That BRII is based on a US program, which is hugely successful, the Small Business Innovation Research Initiative, SBIR. So the Australian system, so low profile, you've never heard of it, it was announced with great promise by Malcolm Turnbull's National Innovation Science Agenda. That's being wound down. One final thing, another of um, the biggest spending items in the industry development arena was the industry growth centers. Uh, those growth centers, you know, things like Cyber and the METS uh, Mining Engineering Technology Services, there's one in health. They are defunded or their funding comes to an end at the end of next year. But over the forward estimates, it seems like there's a still a, a very big pot of cash that's available in that area. They're not saying that those growth centres will continue, but they're not saying they're not either. It's simply that there is money in that area has been allocated. So I'm going to step back. Thank you, James and Denham. Much appreciated and a very useful
0: summary for everyone who's trying to comb through all the news out of yesterday. There's certainly a lot to get through. I'd like to introduce our panel now, starting with Sarah Pearson. who's a non-executive director, investment director and advisor with leadership roles across lots of different areas, including space, uh, deep tech, um, venture capital, et cetera. Prior to your roles, multiple roles, you were the inaugural Chief Innovation Officer and Chief Scientist at DFAT and a scientist by, by training yourself. Welcome, Dr. Pearson.
3: Thanks, Curry. Uh,
0: Matt Barry is the CEO of freelancer.com, and he's also the CEO of escrow.com, a world leader in secure online payments, and adjunct professor in electrical and information engineering at the University of Sydney, and uh, the co-author of over 20 US patent applications. Welcome back, Matt Barry. Yep. Nick Thurkelsen Terry, welcome. You're the CEO and co-founder of Max Kelson, a leading artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions company, and really the sort of company that a lot of the discussion today will centre around. Australian Software Company, Global Ambitions. We're really keen to hear from you about what these things mean for somebody who's building the sort of company that you are. So can I just start with all of the panelists' initial reactions? What did you love? What did you think was missing or think was probably not the right approach? Uh, Dr Pearson, can I
3: start with you? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. I'd like to start with, obviously, it's a challenging time to be doing any sort of a budget. You know, we have got no clue what's happening around the world, where economies are going to land. So I think to put that overarching big picture piece in there is really important. I think it's interesting to look at what other countries are doing. So some countries are actually using this as an opportunity to really accelerate their growth of new economies. And that's really exciting to see that. In terms of this budget, I think it's it started to address some of that. It's got a few good programs. Something I would have loved to have seen, though, is, is a much more of an overarching strategy and much more of an ambition and a vision for where we're taking our economy. There are lots of really good programs, for instance, around infrastructure, around aged care, around you know, women, but they're all very much stuck in the old economy, not the new economy. So there's an opportunity. How do we use that money that they've put aside for these, what I think of as old economy pieces? to make sure that we're actually using that money to develop the new economies as well. Aged care, for instance. There's no way we're going to be able to deliver aged care to our growing age population with the current technologies, the current ways of doing things. So how do we draw in the new technologies? I would love to see a lot more of that. The digital strategy, yeah, you've talked about that. It's got some really good bits in it. I like the skills piece. The skills where they're talking about actually having... You're working in industry and learning about these skills in industry. I think that's really important rather than just going to someone and, and learning these skills. It was really good to see the talk about venture capital, investing in emerging technologies. Uh, I want to know how that links with main sequence ventures though. So that's a deep tech investment company How's that link. Uh, the patent box, I think, is a really good idea. Hydrogen hubs and things are going to do there really good. The venture capital for arena is a pittance though. You know, it's just a tiny amount of money over a few years. So that's that's a shame. There are opportunities to align the investment in Northern Australia. Again, there's always opportunities to align current programs that you might not think of as having tech and science in them, but uh, that's an opportunity. Missing, women's engagement. Okay, so there's money for scholarships, but that's not where the problem is. <laughs> if we're serious, you I mean, listen to Kathy Foley, I think she said it's going to take 150 years to get equality in women in leadership in STEM. Giving a few scholarships isn't going to do it. I really want to see us do something really serious in this, because otherwise, 51% of our population is going to miss out on these new economies, as we are now. So, I think that's a big thing. We've just really got to do something incredibly ambitious. in it. unis, like they're absolutely in dire straits. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but they're, they're, it's a bad time for them. I, I didn't see a lot for universities in there. Collaboration. We need a lot more around collaboration. Interesting. Great, there's money going into the AI hub, but we've got AI hubs around the place already. Let's make absolutely sure, and Nick will talk about that, I'm sure, you know, let's make absolutely sure we're linking in with all of that. It's not just something that SARO or DATA61 do. No mention of NISA. I didn't see anything about that. You know, that's our sort of flagship innovation strategy. didn't see anything about that. Good to see that Department of Industry doing a bit around procurement. That's fantastic. What about defence? Bucket loads of money <laughs> going into defence. Let's get some procurement targets because defence cannot, you uh, know, I mean, a few of us were. Trusted Autonomous System Defence CRC meeting symposium of the week. The future of defence is not the current defence; it's incredibly different. So again, how do you get local research, development, and startups into all of that? I've probably talked for for enough there, but I think there's a lot of good things, a lot of really good programs. So well done to the public service, but I think there's uh, there's still a lot more we could do, and I'd love to see it a lot more ambitious and visionary. Thank you, Sarah Nick. I could see you nodding with vigorous agreement to things that were said
0: there software you're a local software producer what are your thoughts
4: yeah I think I'm going to agree a lot with what Sarah had to say which isn't new and and with what James had to say look this is obviously the most significant budget for the technology sector in quite a while and and we have to call that out and give credit to that the last couple haven't delivered a lot to the sector and so it is good to see a lot of the things that we've been asking for you know in some way land in this budget but it does lack that overall strategy and that ambition that Sarah talks about. I think it could have been a lot more ambitious and a lot more cohesive as a as a strategy. But if we think about the, the individual, and there's a lot of individual initiatives contained within the budget, as James said, not quite a, a grab bag, but you know, lots of very small different initiatives. I think that you know, if and we'll dive deeper into this, but the AI piece talks a lot about adopting technologies, not building technologies that makes me very concerned. You know, AI machine learning is one of the most transformative technologies we're going to see in a long time. And Australia can't be just buying it. We need to be building and exporting it. So that's sort of, I think, a missed opportunity there. A number of the initiatives, quicker depreciation, the the patent box are about companies, you know, they're going to benefit companies that are post-revenue, in fact, profitable. So they're not necessarily geared towards the startup or even scale-up sector that, is either pre-revenue or pre-profit. So again, I think we're not quite landing on necessarily where the support is needed or being asked for as, as you know, something like the, the RDTI changes would have delivered. I, I actually think to, to zoom out, one of the biggest things missing from this budget, although there are important notes about skills, particularly you know, 460 advanced scholarships, which is to be encouraged and, and good to hear, particularly in the deep tech sectors, but there is built into the budget an assumption of reducing net migration, and we're already seeing you know, real upward pressure on wages in the sector from the lack of net migration over the last 12 months. There doesn't seem to be a fix to that or any you know, ambition, at least for the next couple of years to resolve that. And, and I would you know, make the observation that we can train as many people as we want, but if we actually don't have the experienced talent in our sector to help nurture those people coming through... Then we're not going to get them to the level that they need to be for us to be a you know global competitor so i think that's a you know the skills whilst there is some interesting pieces in the budget for skills it doesn't go nearly far enough to resolving some of the shortages that the sector has today let alone what the sector is going to have over the next couple of years so i think i'll stop there there's there's tons to talk about here and i'm keen to dive into some of the detail
0: thanks nick um matt Barry, you have been a commentator with us on previous budgets the last year, there probably wasn't a whole lot. What does this budget look like, and what are your initial reactions to it?
5: Thank you for having me. Um, I think it's built on a remarkable number of assumptions and a wishful thinking that needs to continue. You know, this the budget uh, assumes that the GDP will, you know, basically, basically recover, the economy will basically recover now uh, in the next few months that the time for unemployment to bounce back to pre-COVID levels is two years. As of next year, COVID's over, everything's back to normal, and it's all great. Now, at the same time, it's also relying on the fact that, you know, borders will be open, everyone will be vaccinated by the end of the year, and so forth. Now, a couple of these things might hold. I mean, with the borders closed, uh, you know, anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, retail operators desperately needing people they're saying they can't find people JobKeeper's only come off six weeks ago maybe some of the people are sitting on their bums trading dogecoin and uh, getting away from job keeper might decide they want to go pick some peas or get back into into hospitality but we will see about that but i mean overall it makes so many assumptions that everything's back to normal vaccine strategy works which i think it's very doubtful that it will work all eyes are on israel right now which have you know pretty much vaccinated the population and cases are way down and you know, deaths are way down, but the, pr- the problem is that, according to all the research I've read, that you're just as likely to catch the virus with the vaccine, the, the vaccines are in production, as um, without, just you don't get very sick. But the question is down to transmissibility, and, and can you still transmit, and um, all the reading I've done shows that you can still transmit, and the virus is mutating, and some of these new variants, the vaccines have very low efficacy against them. In fact, in South Africa, they stopped rolling out the um, AstraZeneca because it was basically useless against even mild- to moderate cases. So... The big question is, if Israel opens its borders back up again and and some of these new variants come in, uh, variants of concern that whether or not it will take off again and then we'll have another panic and have to shut down and come up with another vaccine. And then how many of these mRNA vaccines can you have, producing all sorts of random proteins in your body before you might have some some side effects. So it's it's still very, very early days. And, you know, they say in the budget that COVID is 30 times worse than the GFC. Well, there's there's nothing here in the in the budget that indicates to me that it is 30 times worse at all. It looks like a little speed hump. So it makes the assumption that all that goes to plan, the vaccine strategy works in open borders, which I just don't think is going to happen. I think what will happen is we'll see a scare in Israel. Or somewhere like that, which is a bit of a test tube for the vaccine strategy. And then people will realize, hmm, there's a problem. I mean, already we're seeing a lot of cases where, you know, vaccinated security guards in hotel quarantine are leading to breaches, taking it home, giving it to their wives, or, or whatever it may be in Australia. One in every 106 cases that we bring into the country into hotel quarantine results in a breach. And at the moment, we bring about 180 people a fortnight in. So we're going to get breach a week. And we're seeing that. There's a breach yesterday in Victoria, there's a breach in, in, um, in Sydney. And then the, with these new variants, they don't know how it's actually breaching the hotel. They're having a hard time. Well, genetically, they can link it up with. PCR testing, they're not sure exactly how it got out of, you know, the various hotels and into the people are running around with it. So relies upon all of that. Also relies upon continued windfall exports. I mean, you know, if you're not trading Dogecoin, you you could trade lumber and iron ore and soybeans and corn and hogs and uh, just any uh, copper, you know, uh, gold and silver about to take off in a big way. I mean, you can trade any commodity and they're going up, right, in a big way. And, you know, we've had a big windfall. I mean, what's kind of saved the budget in a big way is iron ore which is up triple in the last two years, depending which contract you look at. It's doing absolutely ridiculous windfall profits. The big question is, is this a big reflation trade because of the infrastructure spending the US and China are doing, et cetera, to pump their economies, or are there a bunch of speculators jumping in the middle of this and front running? And I think there might be a lot of speculators front running, in fact, on FinTwit, which I'm a pretty avid reader of, there's a few commenters saying, now, actually, I think like these runs are actually way overblown, and this is more speculation than actual uh, reflection of real supply and demand. But Australia is a massive beneficiary of these really, really high commodity prices. Iron ore, number one export in particular, I mean, coal's okay, but there's been a bit of a trade war with China over that. And then, to a lesser extent, all these other bits and pieces uh, that we produce, we've had to find alternative markets because everything from barley to lobsters to you name it, um, China's been coming up with. Plausible reasons why they don't want to import—maybe maybe a labeling problem, or pests, or some other issue like that. Although we've been fairly successful in finding other markets. In fact, our um, exports have been pretty good overall I mean, in terms of finding other markets. But this whole strategy does rely upon you know Australia continuing to generate windfall profits from its exports, from its commodities. And again, there's not a lot in the budget around elaborate transforming those commodities into manufactured goods at a high a high level. Although there's some good stuff about trades and so forth. So. There's that. It also relies upon geopolitical stability, and I, I do want to call this out because some countries are in major crisis. You obviously look at India, where I think they've actually probably reached their limit of testing at the moment with four hundred thousand cases a day and four thousand deaths. So I think they've kind of hitting the. I think the, the numbers I've been reading online is they think it's ten times larger than that. I've certainly been trying to bring someone out from India to, to join my company. He says you know the positivity rate in places like Delhi are well over thirty three percent. everyone's got it, and so there's this inability to test there's a point and people don't want to get tested because they might catch it if they're, what have you. But you've got issues with that and will will that in emerging markets lead to refugees and, and other border issues? And then you have the whole China question. Yeah, there's been a lot of saber rattling there. We're certainly entering a Cold War with China. China has a lot of punitive things it's doing to punish Australia. It's kind of hamstrung a little bit on iron ore. and I don't know what the freight differential is with Brazil, but, you know, like uh, China is stockpiling commodities hand of a fist. But then at the same time, they've got border disputes with 21 countries at the moment. You know, there's been the stuff that's happened only in the last couple of days. China appears to warn India in the New York Times pushed too hard and the lights could go out because the electricity grid in Mumbai was turned black and they turned up the power in Mumbai with a hacking attack. Then the US, I don't know if you're following the Colonial Pipeline system, that was um, turned off due to a cybersecurity called a ransomware attack, but it turns out that the, um, another article in the New York Times said the actual hackers that did it have uh, actually posted an apology saying... We're apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics. Our goal is to make money, not create problems for society from day on will and moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social... Co- so, basically, we'll be careful in, what, in future uh, who we hack for because it looks like we hack for China and so on.
0: Can I I wanted to jump in there because everything brought yeah. up are things that are kind of related to the budget, critical infrastructure protection, cybersecurity, defence, sovereign capability, mm. you know, continued dependence on commodities in export markets... That context that you've given and then this budget can't be decoupled from a global environment that we live in. I wanted to kind of bring back to the panel, Sarah, you mentioned earlier the National Innovation Science Agenda, which was obviously a big vision on what was going to turn this around that we weren't so dependent on all that commodity export you've spoken about. Now, we didn't hear much about it. We know that there were lots of learnings from the NISA, lots of things that went really well, lots that didn't go so well, and lots that were kind of middling. So in all of the digital strategy and all of the measures in the budget, how well have we been able to articulate the vision of what that next phase looks like? Even talking about the patent box that relies just on, you know, med tech and energy, why doesn't it marry up with other focus areas? So back to the panel, just to kind of map some of those announcements into those big picture things that Matt talked about.
3: Yep. Thanks, Cory And Matt, thank you so much for that big picture. You're absolutely right. I guess that was a bit of a saying at the beginning, it's also uncertain. How do you how do you deliver a strategy in such uncertain times? But you obviously have to make sure you've got those in the back of your mind. And a key part of that is as you're saying Corrie making sure that you're ready because who knows what will happen with with global markets global economies, who will we be selling to? But what we know we'll have to do is we'll have to be selling things with new science and new technology. You know, that's where the high growth is, and that's what we need to be involved in. If we want to be affordable, then we're also going to have to make sure our manufacturing's got the high tech. If you want to be safe and secure, we want to make sure we've got the biosecurity as well as obviously the cyber security. So there's absolutely no shadow of doubt that we need to be pushing yeah. this agenda. In this budget, like I said at the beginning, there's lots of great programs but I don't see it all hanging together with a big vision that fits into you know, Matt's description of the geopolitical, geoeconomic, et cetera, situation we find ourselves in and the talent that we have in Australia, because that's the university piece that has, I think, not, that's been missed out in this budget. How do we use that talent to overcome some of these challenges? Because we've got really smart people in universities who are ready to help us build new industries, who are ready to help us solve social as well as the economic challenges. And we're not reaching into that. In this budget, from my perspective, so I think that's that's a missing piece. And Nick, you talked about the talent gaps that we've got here. Yeah, I mean, migration is a massive issue. If I think about with my main sequence ventures hat on, you know, the sorts of talent that we need to scale up the early stage ideas that we invest in, it's just it's just we don't have enough of it here. The experienced talent, that really, really, I mean, we've got some visas in this budget, but we need we need more than that. Sorry, Matt, you're going to jump
5: in. I was commenting on that briefly. They're, I think they're starting to improve their immigration programs. Before, we were bringing in hundreds of thousands of people, basically, to prop up the housing market. We will bring in cooks to work in suburban curry houses and kennel herders and you know, all sorts of random, You're know, even bringing in migration agents. But now they're working like the called the Global Significant Talent Visa, and that's actually pretty good. They've targeted specific areas like AI, um, ICT, biotech, fintech, etc. I have a candidate that um, was in India and he just said, Listen, I've never been to Australia, but uh, he was he set up the national security uh, cybersecurity centre for India because I just applied for this visa and in thirty days I've got permanent residency. I mean hmm. they're the sorts of people oh, that's good, yeah. re- they're the sorts of people yeah. we need to be bringing in, not people to prop up the housing market. Yeah, um,
2: yeah.
5: And I think they should do more on that. In fact, I actually think at this point in time, Australia is one of the most attractive places in the world. Exactly. So, so if you <laughs> want to bring in the people who are who are not meeting the criteria, they should just have a visa, which is one million dollars. You know, yeah. You pay they pay the government a one million dollar fee and you can come in you'd have you'd have a million people lined up to try and get in i guarantee you
0: yeah the significant investor visa not sure that we've heard a lot about that recently yeah.
5: you wanted to add
0: to
5: that well yeah the government did improve the
4: significant well, not the investor visa the signif- the um, global talent visa quite considerably a year or two ago where originally it didn't have a path to citizenship which may undermine its value i think but they did resolve that and it now is a very good i agree with matt it's a very good policy instrument we have to bring in talent problem at the moment is actually then getting that talent to Australia. You yeah. can get a visa granted for them. But if you, you know, Matt, I'm interested to see how you go getting that talent from India, particularly at the moment. But, you know, we, I, I, we've been trying to bring someone from China for, you know, five months. I and think, getting
5: I think, getting yeah. flights is extremely difficult. I think the story is completely overblown. I've brought people in from the Philippines, no problem. You got, I mean, you just got to go out a week or two and you got to pay a bit extra and maybe you got to wrap your plane through somewhere. But, you know, I, I think it's completely overblown. A lot of people complaining they can't get back. You know, maybe you've got a family of five and you want all the family of five on the same plane, You've got some scheduling issues. And certainly if you're in India, you've got a problem, right? But, um, but outside of that, I think, I think you know, if, if, you, if you really want to come back and you, you had to pay a bit extra and go through a bit of complications, but you can get back.
3: I guess that's highlighting, yeah, you know, there's stuff there, but how do you make sure people know about it and that we're using it strategically? Which brings me to another point, which is it's not just about money. I know this is a budget, And so we talk about money, but what is government's role in this? It's not just money. I think government's roles in building these new economies is changing. I think we need to help governments move beyond just the handing out the grants and being the the grant givers and people who can help work collaboratively in the ecosystem, help people collaborate, make things easier for people, be the grease in the wheels to make things happen faster, focus on how you connect the ecosystems and the opportunities. And and procurement obviously is, is a big part of that. There are things that government can do beyond this budget which are not involving large sums of money. And I'd love to see love to see government think about how they do that. I mean, for instance, it's more than a visa. How do you then make sure people have somewhere to live? They feel they're part of the community and there's a whole system that draws them into those well, ecosystems.
5: If they're global, if they, if you bring them in because they're highly skilled, they go and get a great job and it's a high-paying job, right? The, pro- the problem is when we bring in students that, that can't afford to live. You know, when I went to the USA for my master's program, I had to show proof of funds that I could actually survive. What we're doing is we're bringing in delivery drivers who are skirting through the immigration system to try and get a visa who are unskilled for the most part, right? I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. part of the issue. I do want to bring up one more point just just to finish off my original narrative. I mean, so you've got the geopolitical stability issue, and you may note that there's been a lot of, you know, last week, there was a day where three of the six top articles in Fairfax was about going to war with China. And they brought out some general who started talking about this, and that was deliberate. And then you've got the um, editor of the Global Economic Times in China, who is the bit of the propaganda mouthpiece for the Chinese government, who's just published an article literally this week saying China needs to make a plan to deter extreme forces of Australia, where they've said that, I quote, the plan should include long-range strikes on the military facilities and relevant key facilities in Australia if it's uh, really going to send its troops to China's offshore areas in combat against the PLA. I think it's a good chance that Taiwan will get taken this year. I mean, Hong Kong was pretty much taken. And I think at the same time, you've got the massive buildup of Russian troops in the Ukraine border. They'll probably go and take a bit of Ukraine at the same time. And there'd be a big question if Biden goes to war with Taiwan, will Australia follow? And the one last point I want to make on the the picture is that all of this budget also assumes that there will be no input cost issues. You know, Australia can't be a big beneficiary of all these commodity exports without having big input cost issues into actual its own businesses, right? If you actually want to do anything with these commodities, you know, if you want to build a house, you need lumber, right? If you, you put out infrastructure, you need copper. And these things are all you know, climbing massively. And I, I, and I don't think that that's been fully um, fully understood. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that this is all over. And in actual fact, I think it's only just begun. I think we're going to see some real structural issues happen globally. I'm very surprised I haven't seen banks fail. If people are not paying their rent. It falls back onto the landlord. It falls onto the banks. And they have a debt crisis. And I think you're going to have a massive crisis there. At the moment, it's being papered over by extreme money printing. At the end of the day, Australian government's going to end up with net debt of $1 trillion. And we're going to have to, Print money to the extreme, just like everyone else. So I, I, I think it's fanciful to think this is all over. If that, however, if you believe that story, the budget's actually surprisingly well thought out. It's they're not; they're not building um, car parks for marginal electorates to try and tip them over the edge in this one. There is a bit of stuff to to box Labor in. I think Labor's going to have a really tough time responding to this because there's a bit for women, there's a bit for climate, there's a bit for whatever, there's a bit for AI. That you know, it's kind of and how you get, what do you do? going to spend more. So I think they've boxed them in with this. So it is a bit of an election budget, but I I actually was surprisingly pleased to see that, you know, they're thinking about bits and pieces here or there to kind of, to improve the economy, but you have to believe a lot of fairytale assumptions.
0: Uh, I'll, um, you know, rewind 12 months, and I think sort of the timelines that you were talking about were vastly different to some people talking in terms of the impact of the coronavirus being sort of July-August timeframe. I think even then you were talking years out. So that's that's certainly proven to be true. So so just going back to James and Denham, when we talk about the big picture stuff that Matt's outlined and, you know, if the assumptions are that we're all back on track and we've got a roadmap to recovery that's kind of coherent and makes sense, does the, the narrative in the budget really address those things it does seem that there's some patches that there is lots for everyone but just in the context of matt's comments what are your thoughts
1: matt they were incredibly interesting comments and, and how does this budget kind of map to those your questions of those assumptions i i actually i don't think it does like we were in conversation last night with a bunch of people who'd come out of uh you know budget events so everyone was kind of talking you know talking the issue of the day I don't think anyone said the borders would be open before 2023, 2024 in any meaningful way. So, I mean, there, there seems to be an a, assumption, you know, anecdotally, people don't believe that borders are going to be open, In certainly not in the way we, we would travel pre-pan, pre-pandemic. And so it was surprising that we didn't see more attention given to that skills front. I think Nick makes a very good point about, access to experienced talent like we've we've got great people in australia we've got a system that churns out you know good people but there are areas where we don't have the kind of deep you know deep skills in particular things like even like the you know building big fast growing companies is something that you know you require specific experience in and uh, we haven't done that at you know, at the kind of scale that other countries have done. So, yeah, to, to Matt's point on the assumption that borders will be open, I don't think that's an assumption you can, you can make and, and rely on.
5: I think the biggest thing that's missing from this is money to build a proper federal quarantine centre. I think that is the premise that makes this all work. If we're having a breach every 106 cases being brought in and the cases are still growing around the world in some places exponentially, particularly from the markets we tend to bring people in from, you've got to have really good quarantine. What are you going to do vaccinate seventy yep. percent of the population, give the population a deadline, say, "Hey, we're opening borders next week," and then all of a sudden you bring somebody in, someone c- catches it, the whole thing runs through, and then and then instead of having a two percent effect on GDP growth like we've got now, it's ten percent like it is in the UK because you have you have this massive outbreak and a massive lockdown, right? It's just it's fanciful to think that that you're just going to vaccinate everyone, open the borders. So I think they really need to allocate a lot of money for a
1: federal quarantine response.
0: Give- yeah, I agree. Can I make, I think, can make this you know, work?
1: Sorry, go. Yeah. Oh, look, I was just going to say one of the things that probably didn't get reflected particularly well in the media coverage that I saw today, but Josh Frydenberg's press conference inside lockup yesterday, he was kind of he was really hammered on that specific question: Where's the money for quarantine? Is it squirreled away somewhere, and, and it's going to get dropped? Because there were like there were initiatives like that mRNA, you know, this commitment to building uh, local production of mRNA. Uh, vaccines where they just simply didn't say how much they had allocated so that's what the patent box is the patent the patent box is purely for vaccine development
5: in australia it's not for it's not for biotech startups in australia it's for because you won't you don't have significant tax revenue right it takes you years to do research that's purely to get vaccine manufacturing happen
1: okay oh well that makes sense but uh anyway they they were hammering him on the quarantine facility where's the money and it doesn't appear to be budgeted at this point Sorry, Matt. No. Just on that point, the the only, I mean, it, it
4: requires the IP to be held in Australia, exactly for that for that patent box to work. So that would only benefit UQ. Uh,
5: no, it would also benefit overseas countries that want to go and patent in Australia the intellectual property, right? And I think yeah, that's it, would, exactly. it would it would require... and bring, and bring bring research in and and you know, yeah, Australia Australia was in a really funny situation in COVID because um, the bushfires had happened. We had no masks stockpiled. The national medical stockpiles, which I kind of helped out in the, in the peak of the crisis, didn't stockpile things that were useful for COVID, like face shields and, and so forth. And then people tried bringing it. All these entrepreneurs were bring it in. I was bringing it in, right? Bring in masks, bring in what have you. And then you had a lot of grandstanding by Homeland Security going, oh, these masks, are ch- they're made in China. They're not the Australian standard. Well, you've built the Australian standard just to boost domestic production. These masks actually work, right? Uh, there's some ca- theres some you know, poor quality stuff, but the, the good stuff actually works. And, we'll, and entrepreneurs were selling on eBay. People were bringing in all this equipment to protect Australia. And then Peter Dutton um, started grandstanding around saying, oh, we're going to stop it at board security and, and confiscate it. So started confiscating all, all this PPE that was coming in. And then what happened is... After the developers, Greenland and what have you, were buying all this stuff up in shops and sending it back to China, which is ironically what the Australian entrepreneurs were doing in China was buying all up in Chinese shops and bring into, into the country. Dutton went and banned the export of PPE from Australia when 95% of it was produced in China. So all Greenland were doing were re-exporting the stuff that was made in China, brought to Australia, and Australian shops sold at a profit. And send it back and at that point australia was cut off from ppe i was trying to bring it in and i was saying we can't send any ppe to australia so we were in a, a bit of a bit of a crisis there and now we've got a problem with the vaccines where because we've had such a good response the europeans and what have you done to give us the vaccines because they're other the more desperate nations so we have got to build a domestic capability for this
0: can I just go to some of the questions, and I'd like to invite more questions in, in if, from people watching today. One of the questions is, with the DTA resources cut, uh, how surprising is that, given the renewed focus on the economy, digital economy rather, and the agencies moved back to the PM&C? And I would, I'd kind of frame that as well, saying the DTA's role has really seemed to have changed from its original focus. Any thoughts from James and Denham particularly, and any of the other panellists? Nick?
4: Yeah, look, I think it probably reflects an evolution of the DTA's remit that, you know, originally it was there to get the federal agencies adopting technologies and sort of as a way to pull them through. And as you mentioned, it was like the, I think it was James mentioned, like a lot of those initiatives now have been pushed back to the departments because the departments have developed, a, you know, a more advanced digital capability. And so the, the DTA's role in that, you know, somewhat, yeah, I'm sure this is a point that people on the panel can debate, but, you know, in a sense, job done, you know, we've had these initiatives that have been pushed back to the departments and they are starting to drive that digital, you know, transformation that the, the agency was meant to, meant to kickstart. Uh, and so, you know, the money now lands in the departments rather than landing in the DTA, but, you know, interested in others', others views on whether there it, is, it is job done.
1: Look, I'll jump in there. So the DTA was um, set up prior to Malcolm Turnbull becoming prime minister, so he... He was communications minister. It was a particular passion of his. You know, I don't think it's within a bull's roar of being job done. I mean, I mean, to the extent that this kind of digital transformation is an ongoing process anyway. But to me, like a big part of it, a big part of the original DTO and now DTA was just to build internal capability and capacity inside the public service. Now there's lots of structural issues that get in the way of them achieving that goal. But right now, when you've got what will be a massive program like the yeah, uh, you know, the the MyGov reimagining and, and redevelopment, that's uh, you know, that's that's gone through prototyping and a short beta and is about to launch into the kind of scale up version of, of that system. It's it's all been done externally by Deloitte. Like, maybe the thinking's been done in internally, but it hasn't been used, despite the what will be hundreds of millions of dollars being used to develop a crack team of digital ninjas who, who can do these systems. It's been an, an outsourced program, and that's got to be disappointing.
3: I'd agree with that, James. I think it goes back to that point I mentioned about public service reform, public sector reform, and I know there's lots of programs around that. Having an, an agency that's responsible is a great start, but it's never the end point. So, you know, the fact that they're not investing as much in it, it would be fine as long as they're doing more in terms of the, the rest of the public sector reform, which, you know, you obviously don't see in the, in the budget. It would be great to see if some of the public servants take up some of those cadetships. Uh, I know a few years back now when it was NICTA, so Data61 originally NICTA, they wanted to set up something like that, where they'd actually give public servants these cadetships where you could have them working in tech companies or have, have them learning whilst they're also public servants. So I'd like to see that they'll take up some of that uh, through that. But that public service reform, and not just from a digital perspective, but also from, as I said earlier, what government's role is beyond just handing out money. I think that whole piece really needs to be done. It'd be good to see. It'd be good to see that.
5: I think the other good thing was that they didn't raise taxes like Biden is uh, meeting to do. I mean, Biden's getting rid of, or proposing to get rid of the capital gains tax discount, which I w- which will most definitely bring the stock markets down, and, you know, mooting wealth taxes and, you know, trying to get the rest of the world to agree to a minimum corporate tax and whatever. And I think it's quite good they didn't go and touch those areas.
0: Sarah, can I go back? You said something earlier about, obviously, the, the women in STEM discussion is an ongoing one that bubbles away in the background, and, you know, it's certainly a discussion that we like to be part of. There's some fantastic work that's done in this country, but it doesn't seem to be shifting the needle. we have talked about the industry and partnerships and scholarships, and that we need to be kind of bold and ambitious. How do we do that? How do we really kind of kickstart out of this kind of,
3: yeah, well, yeah. it's one of those complex systems, isn't it? It's not just a silver bullet. There's a whole load of different things that need to change. And uh, way back when I was suggesting that uh, we should do the IDEO mapping, you know, so let's get a girl born <laughs> and let's look at her entire life and see who the influences are and what and how you affect all of those. For instance, primary school teachers, you know, I shudder when I hear about primary school teachers that tell girls maths is for boys. I mean, that's just graceful. And they're women teachers. Yeah, they're, and there's all these points along a girl's life that, that get impacted. There have been some great roadmaps, you know, women in STEM roadmaps done. And I know that we've got our ambassador for women in STEM, which are all really great moves. But I think it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to draw together a collaborative approach. So you know, how do you make sure you've got industry working together with government, working together with the universities, working together, together, together? I think there's lots of little pieces, but it's not all together. There's a new program that's just about to launch called Unique You, which is actually working with high school girls who are thinking about STEM, but in non-traditional roles, not just in terms of going to university, but actually going through TAFE, so vocational education. I think that's a big piece that's missed. How do we get girls in STEM in the vocational side of things? And they're actually matching women in those vocational jobs with the girls. I think that's that's one step, uh, that collaboration. But we actually just need the whole piece to work together and for us to say this is not good enough. Yeah, we really do. We're actually all going to jump in and change with this. So from a board's perspective, we're going to make sure that there are no ASX boards with less than, let's say, 40% women on them. That you know, there should be none. <laughs> so I know that's targets and everyone's debatable about that. But I think that bigger picture piece about bringing everyone together and saying, okay, this is a, this is a mission. We can't go to the moon right now, but let's have a mission in Australia, which is equality for women.
1: I'm interested to know what Matt Barry thinks about that. You're running an ASX listed company, Matt. What do you think about this idea of, you know, having some sort of mandated targets for women on boards? And one other thing you might want to address also is it's, Being put to me by, you know, many people that government grants should be attached to similar kinds of targets. So if you're accessing an accelerating commercialization grant, you might need, you know, a proportion of your team, a minimum proportion of your team being women. Matt, what do you think?
5: I don't think anyone should be discriminated against by having quotas. I mean, I'm, I'm very negative on quotas. I think people should be there because they're there because they're good, right? And not because we say that they're, you know, tall, short, fat, thin, what have a certain gender, what have you. I, I, I don't think it should be a quota for, for anything. Now, on the other hand, I do fully encourage getting more women into, into technology and so forth. And we need to address K to 12 in particular and think it's the future of our country. And particularly by year 10, kids have made their mind up because we have this uh, crazy lead award system called the HSC, or whatever they call it now, UAI, where you kind of get ranked and that's, that determines what jobs you can do, et cetera. But, you know, no, I, don't, I don't think there should be a, a quota for, for anything. You know, um, I think we should encourage, you know, diversity of, of opinion and of thought and, and so forth. But I, I don't think that we should have quotas.
0: We've just got about 10 minutes left. We've got a few questions from the audience. One is, it doesn't seem to be a lot on cybersecurity in the budget. Is that, is that right? Are we reading that right? Or it seems to be such an important discussion.
5: I thought there was a, I thought there was a mention of a centre of excellence of some sort being funded. I, I did write it down. It was after AI. They mentioned cybersecurity. Plus, I will note that this new globally significant talent visa that they've got does specifically target cybersecurity and they are actively granting it because I am interviewing one of the guys who subbed the National Cybersecurity Center in India for that. And he got the visa in 30 days. He said, I've, I applied on an off chance. and I got permanent residency. He probably is now getting out because of the flights, but I think the flight's now going to Howard Springs and they're going to the quarantine facility there. So hopefully he'll get a flight soonish. But at least for skills, they're, they're, that's available and um, it's happening. And I do, know, I do think there's something in the budget about at the center there.
3: So there is, there is one in the budgets for cyber, just like there is for AI. I'm trying not to be too negative, but is it enough? If you look at how much other countries are spending on AI, it's an absolute pittance. And the oh, same yeah. around the cybersecurity, you know, if you think about the cybersecurity opportunities that Matt was talking about, the challenges Matt was talking about. Yeah. Is it enough? Um, and is it, are we really being serious about it? I think probably. Probably not as much as we
5: need to be. Well, more to your point, actually, if I could really enhance on that, I think we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity here to reskill the nation. Yeah. Mm. yeah. If you think at a high level, of, if the borders are closed and will be bought, closed for a longer period of time, this is a real chance to reskill the nation. And we, I, I think, we could have, we could we could do a real Apollo program here, where you could provide real incentives uh, in key areas in uh, universities to get people into universities to study and retrain them. And as well as trade schools, world-class trade schools, the level of Germany, level of some parts of the US, et cetera, and really reskill the nation. Because after three or four years of going through those schools, and I think trade schools are a very important part of that. You know, people come out, they get high-paying jobs, and and start businesses and do all sorts of crazy things. Now, there are some stuff in the budget around that, so I won't discount that. But I think we could we could really, really, really double down on that and just, okay, borders are closed. Let's let's make Australia not just a lucky country, but a smart country. Let's really build an Apollo program about re-education, and and a lot of that comes from the high school system, which you, you you've got to make it so that kids are excited about technology naturally, but they need to be able to connect the dots from that to actually what the career paths are and what yeah. subjects. Stay in school, which is missing.
3: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that, Matt. And I'm going to get back to this gender piece. Okay, if you don't like the quotas, I get that. I know that's, that's an issue. It is actually a much more complex issue than just merit, though. So I, I need to have that say. If you don't want to do quotas, do a gender lens. We used to do that on all the programs that we invested in. Let's make sure we got the gender lens so that we're not making ourselves do the wrong thing because we, our brains think a certain way and think male, myself included. Yeah,
5: I've got many companies. Some of my companies have been an all female team. And the reason yeah. why they're being an all-female team is because all of them are the best people at <laughs> the job. They're all, yes. they're all the best people at the job, right? Like, you know, yeah, exactly. it's just, yeah. I, I don't make any decisions yeah. based on, any, on yeah. any, whoever, who the candidates are and I pick from the candidates. available. Yeah.
3: So just back to that point about building the skills and making this a, a, a great mission, um, yeah. I absolutely agree. And making sure that we get rid of any sort of a... Uh, skew that we have that stops women from being part of this. Because AI, sure. if we don't have women in this, we are stuffed from an AI perspective. For so sure. we need to be really careful on that.
5: We used to have a really solid AI program in Australia. I remember in 1991 to 1995, uh, or four, when I went through my computer science degree, we had Ross Quinlan, who wrote the textbook that I ended up using at Stanford when I did AI at Stanford. He was, was an American in Australia. You had Norman Fu. You had, yeah, you know, Australian AI researchers were on the global stage back then. In fact many of the textbooks Neil Westy and Chip design it was the textbook <laughs> I used at Stanford you know it was for Adelaide, you know like yeah, no, a lot you're, of, you're not wrong but yeah. um, I think
4: that we did much better in those symbolic systems days than but we've been asleep at the wheel in the deep learning systems days right yeah. the the representation of Australian research at conferences like ICML or, or Neurips is is woeful you know we we perform way down the end of the list and we really have been asleep at the wheel and you know it's 2021 deep learning ai has been in vogue since 2013 and we're just starting to put a focus on it i think the next missed opportunity the area that we actually have a structural advantage in research is quantum computing you know oh. uh, we we do we we absolutely have world class research here and a lot of you know a lot of the research we've exported to the world but again you know we're looking at a budget that doesn't mention quantum computing you know is it going to be another 10 years until we have some quantum computing support in a budget, even though the time to do it would be now, given the current, you know, the current advantages that we have. And this, I think Australia, if we zoom out, we continue to have this problem where we quite like the R side of R&D, the research, the universities, research centers, et cetera. And then you know, we're writing um, you know, depreciation for software, patent box, et cetera, which is really past the D side. It's, it's you know, in profit and scale. That the gap still is in the development. It's in the translation. James mentioned earlier that there was no, you know, translation fund which was being asked for. The RDTI is lacking, and again, we're we're in a situation where the funding gap, you know, and and if I look at the AI funding, it's about adoption, which is sort of conceding that we're yeah. too late, you know, to actually be an innovator and builder of AI here in Australia and an exporter of it because it doesn't mention any of those things. You know, are we going to do the same with quantum computing where we were strong in the R and as a nation have invested deeply in research and quantum computing over the last 20 years? And are we going to miss the development and commercialization phase of that and end up adopting you know, quantum technologies in, in you know, 2028, 2030 mm. when they're actually commercially available?
3: I agree, Nick. And anyone who knows me knows I've wheel out this wheelbarrow every time, which is I love what Innovate UK used to do, which is a strategic technology road mapping. You find an industry sector, you do your road mapping. Great, what are the technologies we've got? What are the export high growth opportunities? Now, how do we make the whole system, the triple helix work to do the R and the D and the C?
5: and you, know, you could you could take one of the these line items of the budget chip off say 200 million dollars and offer 200 globally significant researchers a million bucks each to come to australia and enjoy covid free beautiful air water yeah. land right like food yeah. yeah you know and and bring a lot of yep. expertise in i don't think it'd be that expensive in the scheme of things
1: yeah oh, i couldn't agree more it's particularly on on quantum and and we've we've had exam examples of this you know over the decades matt you were mentioning ai but you know, wouldn't it be great? Although there was there are a lot of budget initiatives uh, in tech, wouldn't it be great if government actually just placed a couple of big bets, in uh, big bets on new emerging techs where we are showing promise?
3: Yes, right from the R to the D and the C, so not even just the R.
5: Yeah, I mean, Ch- China gets up and goes. There are nine strategically important areas we we want to we want to um, focus on the future. The U.S. has done the same. They've got they've got they, actually the U.S. has got nine areas. They've you know, a high performance ceramics, you know, deep, mm. deep learning, you know, supersonic engine technology, you know, a chip fabrication. And these are all you know, you know, structurally and strategically important areas where they're building the expertise, stopping the exports, you know, et cetera, to really solidify them for the future. It's China can make chips, but it can't make the machines that make the chips very well, for example. Well,
4: fabrication's an interesting point, Matt, in the context of the geopolitical environment yes. that you elucidated before. And and yes. again, you know, something that the sector has been talking about some sovereign fabrication capability at a development phase, not research, as as we have at, at University of Sydney. But yeah, again.
5: Well, it's critically yep. important because if Taiwan gets taken where a yeah, lot of the ships sure. get manufactured, yeah, where yeah. is it going to go, right? It's either have to go back onshore or you know, there's maybe an opportunity for Australia to, to get yep. into this. I mean, we've got, we had the expertise in the CSIRO in the, in the past um, with some of the work at uh, Dennis, what's his name was, Dennis Redfern, was it, et cetera. We've, I mean, we've got, we've got bits and pieces everywhere. We had Neil Westy with Radiator and David Skellen. You know, There's We've had stuff in the past. If we, if we concentrate on this, it could be a good opportunity for us.
3: Yeah, and we've got emerging expertise in it too, in terms of emerging chips.
5: Yeah, it's a seismically stable country, you know. I mean
1: Well, you know, the the of the chief scientist in New South Wales has uh uh, put a report together on the fabrication sector and where Australia might um, be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities you've talked about. hasn't uh, really seen the light of day publicly, but it's it's available if anyone's interested in that uh, sector.
3: Right. Corrie, do you mind if I make a quick comment to, because you've got a bunch of public servants on the line? I'll be really, really quick. And And I just want to say at a time when dollars are short, it's hard to get governments to put money into anything other than a job today, shovel-ready, I just want to congratulate them because it must have been a hard fight to, to get this money. So I just want to say well done. I would encourage you to retrofit all those programs into some sort of strategic framework so that you can actually put it in some sort of strategy, including focusing on some of these opportunities. So the opportunities we've been talking about now is a, some way of retrofitting that into that. And also, innovators and entrepreneurs are just going to get on with it. So jump in. Don't just sit in in your office and give out grants. Jump in, get involved with the innovators and entrepreneurs and see if there's other ways you can help. I was
0: going to do a summary, but Dr. Pearson, I think you did that perfectly. So there's lots of of big picture opportunity. There's lots of opportunity to re-engineer some of those announcements into a strategy that can really help march things forward. And also just the note that everyone's made is there is an opportunity right now. We've seen some come and go. Let's not lose another one. Uh, I'd just like to thank James and Denham. It's obviously a massive day in budget lockup. up Appreciate you providing the, the context and the overview. Matt Barry, your insights are always incredibly valuable and putting at the lens of all of these things that are going on that make this budget important right now. Nick, you are ground zero of the sort of things we're talking about in terms of how do we keep companies like yours flourishing and growing for you know prosperity um sarah pearson a brilliant lens you see it through lots of different um views which was incredibly important to the conversation so i'd like to thank you thank you everyone i appreciate have a fantastic day and looking forward to seeing you all soon
3: awesome thank you thank
0: you bye everyone